You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Thursday, April 21st, 2022. I'm Cutta Babcock. And I'm Ellie Shannon. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, Kira McKinley goes over campus news with information on reports of bias in residence halls. Then, Ellie Shannon covers local news with details on Colorado's expectance of another litter of wolf pups. Then, Cota Babcock goes over new updates in COVID-19 statistics and policies. And we hear from Ram Events president Paul Rose about the upcoming Rambunctious comedy show. After that, I go over how the Department of Justice is correcting an algorithm that used ethnicity in determining early release eligibility. Then, Ellie Shannon speaks to Anna Tomka about the Through the Student Lens Film Festival. To conclude today's show, I explain updates on technology with information on the Obamas pulling their podcast from Spotify. Let's move right into campus and local news. This is Kira McKinley reporting your campus news for Thursday, April 21st. There has been an overwhelming increase in reports of bias and vandalism in the CSU resident halls, according to Katrina Lieby of the Collegian. A majority of these vandalism cases are supposedly a result of interpersonal disputes among roommates. The Collegian noted that there have been cases of racial slurs written on property in Corbett Hall. Last year, there were about 20 tracked incidents of damages in the resident halls. This year, there have been around 150 incidents that have resulted in $60,000 of damages. The halls that have seen the highest incidents of property damage are Newsom and Corbett Halls. Senator John Hickenlooper visited Colorado State University's Powerhouse Energy Campus. Hickenlooper heard various presentations on CSU's involvement in, quote, sustainable practices in animal culture, harnessing soil as a reserve for climate mitigation, and the NASA-funded investigation of collective updraft satellites, mission for better understanding of storms in the tropics, end quote. According to CSU Source News, Hickenlooper said, quote, so much of this is new territory in Colorado and the Western states are really taking the lead, end quote. In other news, KCSU has partnered with Magic Rat, a live music venue in Fort Collins to hold an open mic night the fourth Wednesday of every month from seven to nine. The first open mic night will take place Wednesday, the 27th. Thank you for listening to my CSU campus news updates. I'm Kira McKinley. Now on to local news. This is Ellie Shannon with your local news. Fort Collins first responders will soon have a new game-changing app that will improve interactions with those in the community who have mental health issues or intellectual and developmental disabilities. The Vitals app is a first-of-its-kind partnership with UC Health through the co-responder program and mental health response team. People and caregivers can make an account on the app and create a profile of an individual and include their name, photo, medical information, and their behavioral triggers and de-escalation techniques. According to Sadie Swanson of the Coloradoan, this app will help officers respond better in a crisis. Fort Collins police officers and UC Health co-responders who have the app will receive notifications when they are near someone with a profile. Fort Collins is the first community in the country to use the app with a co-responder program and the first community in Colorado to even use the app. Colorado is expecting the birth of another litter of wolf pups any day now. Last year, wolves naturally migrated into the state and formed a pack north of Walden in Jackson County with the birth of six pups. State wildlife officials have not seen any evidence of denning behavior or of a new litter of pups, but wolves typically give birth from mid-April to mid-May. 
Don Gittleson owns the farm where the first den site of last year's pack was located, and Gittleson stated to the Coloradoan that the pack's adult female was observed as ready to mate in February. Wildlife officials did confirm that a cow was injured badly enough to be euthanized on March 14th, just miles from Gittleson's ranch. State wildlife officials continue to look for ways to protect livestock from being harmed by wolves. Park Lane Mobile Home Park residents in Fort Collins have received $1 million in county funds to United Neighbors slash Vecinos Unidos, a nonprofit that represents the park's residents. The money will come from the county's Federal American Rescue Plan Act funds. According to Sadie Swanson of the Coloradoan, the county's contribution requires the mobile home park's residents to meet certain affordable housing obligations for the next 20 years, preserving Park Lane Mobile Home Park as a long-term affordable housing option. This option will give an opportunity to preserve affordable housing access. Thanks for listening to your local news updates. Make sure to tune in to the Rocky Mountain Review every Tuesday and Thursday from 4 to 5 p.m. This is Ellie Shannon, and you're listening to KCSU on 90.5 FM. We'll be right back. What's up? I'm DJ Mads. Tune in from 5 to 7 p.m. tonight to hear what theme I've got in store for you. back on the Rocky Mountain Review. If you missed any part of Campus and Local News with Kira McKinley and Ellie Shannon, check out our podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to listen back. I'm Coda Babcock, and these are COVID-19 updates for Thursday. Colorado State University reports over 8,200 cases of COVID-19 since reporting began in May 2020. 11 new cases were reported yesterday among students, with one new case reported among staff and faculty at the university. Masks are no longer required on CSU's Fort Collins campus, with the exception of some buildings like the CSU Health Network. Larimer County reports low COVID-19 transmission levels, along with over 80,000 COVID-19 cases and 485 deaths. The county's seven-day case rate rose significantly in recent weeks, with around 128 cases per 100,000 residents, based on data reported this morning. 7% of tests administered in Larimer County came back positive in the past week, and new COVID-19 hospital admissions remain low. COVID-19 patients take up less than 2% of local inpatient hospital beds. The state of Colorado reports over 1.3 million cases of COVID-19, along with over 13,000 deaths. 4.8 million people have been tested in Colorado, with overall hospitalizations at over 61,000. 10.5 million vaccines have been administered in the state, and nearly 4 million Coloradans are fully vaccinated. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reports over 80.5 million cases of COVID-19 and over 987,000 deaths nationally. 
Over 82% of the eligible U.S. population is at least partially vaccinated against COVID-19. Cases are going up nationally, while deaths are beginning to increase. I'm Coda Babcock, and that's all for Thursday's COVID-19 updates. Information from this segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and the CDC. If you are a student, staff member, or faculty member at CSU, visit covid.colostate.edu to submit vaccine information and get the most recent information on COVID-19 at the university. Michelle Bateau and Amanda Seals are coming to the Lori Student Center for a rambunctious comedy show on April 30th. Today, I'm joined by Paul Rose, the president of Ram Events, to talk about the comedians and what attendees can expect. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Can you tell me a bit about previous Ram Events projects this year and how you all are expecting this one to compare? Yeah, so we've had a lot of really great events this year. Um, I think one challenge that a lot of people on campus has been facing, um, including RAM events, is just how do we put on events after COVID and just trying to find ways to still throw high-quality events that students can enjoy. And so we've done a lot of mixed mediums with the type of events that we did. We started off the year with a couple movie nights. We did a Halloween event. Um, We are obviously continuing. We have um, educational keynotes throughout the months for maybe the Heritage Months or just other speakers coming to campus. Uh, Most recently, we collabed with Housing and Dining and the Pride Center and the Drag Club on campus to throw on the Drag Show, which was a super exciting event um, to have back because we haven't been able to do it for a couple of years. But, you know, we measure success and kind of how well does it fit the values of us as an organization? How well does it fit the values of the CSU community? And, you know, we feel as though as long as we're bringing people together and allowing people to be in community with each other, you know, we consider that an ex- a successful event. And so I feel as though all our events this year have kind of followed that model and um, expect the comedy show to go the same way. All right. And then Michelle Bateau is a beloved comic who's made her mark with her Netflix special, Welcome to Butopia, and her adulting podcast with Jordan Carlos at WNYC. For listeners who are unfamiliar with her work, can you describe a bit about her comedy style and what makes a Buteau show unique? Yeah, I think Michelle is going to be a really exciting person to have on campus. Uh, She seems to have a very interactive comedy style, which is super dope. She's actually bringing in a DJ. She'll do that with her show and she'll have the DJ kind of playing throughout and interacting um, with the audience that way. So it's kind of really unique in that sense. Um, But I think she just has like super relatable humor that I think college students will really like. All right, and then the other comic, Amanda Seal, is known for her roles in Insecure and her special, I Be Knowin'. Can you tell us a bit about her comedy style and how the audience can expect the two to interact? Yeah, I think... Amanda is also really unique in kind of her comedy style. One thing that she does really well is bringing in serious topics that are going on within society and uh, through comedy kind of bringing awareness to those different things and different topics in a way that's more relatable and approachable um, than maybe just having a conversation about it can seem. So I think that that's super unique about the way that she kind of does comedy. And again, I think something that the CSU community can really enjoy. Why did Rem Events decide to get these two comedians on stage for the rambunctious comedy show? Yeah, so we really were just looking for comics that we feel as though can represent um, multiple intersectional identities was something that was really important to us when we were looking for comics. Someone 
who fits the identities of the students that we're catering to. So we were super excited to have Michelle and Amanda be on the roster of the comedians that we could have brought. You know, also just trying to find somebody who students can relate to and can really get excited to see. You know, they have a couple of shows that students watch and The Circle or Insecure, I think students are familiar with and can recognize them from. College campuses provide a crucial place for comedic geniuses to find new fans. How do you think RAM Events helps to ring in talented people like Butel and Seals and offer exciting events for students? Yeah, so I think the process start to finish is pretty interactive when we're trying to choose our talent. We're trying to choose people who we think that college students know, but also college students could get to know and relate to and recognize them from. So trying to find somebody who fit that was really important to us when looking into uh, the person that we are going to bring for the comedy show. And so I think Michelle and Amanda really fit that. But again, especially with Amanda, she really does bring in all of these social issues that I think are super relevant on college campuses today. And a lot of the conversation that we have in classes and with each other can sort of fit into that realm. So uh, it's really cool to have somebody who also understands those issues and can also educate people on them through comedy. In addition to providing comedy shows and other similar entertainment, Ram Events puts on tons of other events throughout the year. Can you tell us about other upcoming events and a little bit about the CSU Drag Show, which happened this past weekend after quite a bit of time away from the stage? Yeah, so like I said a little bit earlier, we do really throw so many eclectic different events uh, that I think can cater to a lot of different communities on campus. Uh, Within our structure, we have our liaison positions, which work with uh, the diversity offices within the Lori Student Center and this larger CSU community. And we do a lot of events with them. So I think in the past, we've done a lot of educational events. We've done trips into the community, again, movie nights, things like that. Uh, Like you were saying, we did most recently do the drag show, which again was in collaboration with Pride and Housing and the Drag Club. And uh, the drag show is something that we used to do every year, I believe, on campus. Uh, But because of COVID, it had to get stopped for a little bit. But it's this really great way that Pride raises money for scholarships uh, for students with uh, LGBTQ plus identities. And so we were able to collect money for that this year. We had uh, upwards of 1,200 people in attendance, which was super great to see, kind of bring back in person and have just the community be together. But I think we raised just under $5,000 for that event for the scholarship. And so it goes towards a really great cause, uh, allows a lot of student participation. Students can perform in the drag show, which is something that we always love to see with events. How can we get students involved? But again, yeah, just a collaboration across campus. And that was really what made the event super awesome. All right. And then if students are wanting to get involved with RAM events after hearing about this, how can they find that information? So RAM events is kind of unique in that we're a student organization, but we are still paid as students to work there. Uh, So we... uh, couple times a year, usually once a semester, we go through a hiring process, which we're actually going through right now. Uh, We're looking for a Black African-American Cultural Center liaison, but students can apply to that position. You can either go to our Instagram, which is the best way to stay updated on events, and also our hiring when we're hiring. You can find us at ramevents at CSU on Instagram, or you can go to our website. It's lsc.colostate.edu slash ramevents, and that's another great way to find out how to get involved with us and how to find out about events and be part of our organization. 
And then is RSVP required to attend the Rambunctious Comedy Show? And how can students and community members find tickets? Yeah, we are asking that people RSVP to the event. If you look on any of our marketing, go to our Instagram, click on our bio, any of those options, you'll find a QR code or a link to take you to an Eventbrite link that'll help you get tickets. And students were just asking that they bring their student ID and it'll be an open event for them. If student, I just said that one. <laughs> All right. What are you most excited for as Ram Events prepares to host this event? I'm just excited to have that community aspect of the events. I think that's what I really love about RAM events is the fact that we have students across campus who normally wouldn't get to talk to each other, wouldn't interact with each other, come to these events and just have a really great time together. And so I think that was something that was accomplished through the drag show, through the movie nights that we do, through the educational events. It just brings all of these different students together with different experiences together when normally we wouldn't. So I think that's something that I love about our events and something that I'm especially looking forward to for the comedy show. All right. Is there anything else you'd like to add today? No, I don't think so. I think that's it. All right. Thank you so much again for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Once again, that was Paul Rose of Ram Events speaking on the upcoming Rambunctious Comedy Special at the Lori Student Center. We'll be right back with national news, but if you missed that interview and want to listen back, check us out on the KCSU app or online at kcsufm.com news. DJ Outer Control, you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock for KCSU News, and this is National News Highlights for Thursday. The U.S. Department of Justice is addressing bias in early releases. Carrie Johnson from National Public Radio reports that the department found racial disparities in assessment of a prisoner's likelihood of engaging in future crimes, and they are working to remove these disparities. The tool, which helps predict crime recidivism, is called Pattern, and the algorithm was found to overestimate recidivism of black women compared to white women prisoners. Previously, NPR went through the program and noticed a collection of problems with mathematical algorithms and flaws that placed inmates into incorrect categories. University of, of Surrey law professor Melissa Hamilton told NPR, quote, When using factors with criminal history, prison discipline, and education, the tool is almost inevitably going to have disparities unless they correct for systemic biases in policing, prosecution, corrections, and education, end quote. In response to these issues, the Justice Department is correcting flaws in Pattern's algorithm to take ethnicity out of the equation and reprogram the app to properly assign inmates based on true risk. An investigation is underway after the Navy confirmed that two of three Navy soldiers who died aboard the USS George Washington within just one week died by suicide. 
Jordan Fryman reports that the Navy confirmed the cause of deaths Wednesday. The two dead servicemen were retail services specialist 3rd Class Mikhail Sharp and interior communications electrician 3rd Class Natasha Huffman. The two were found dead on April 9th and 10th. The third sailor was found unresponsive on April 15th and their identity has not yet been released. The U.S. Navy is still investigating their cause of death as well, and details have not been released to the public. The USS George Washington has remained docked at Newport News Shipbuilding while it undergoes serious renovations, with a smaller crew of around 2,500 people. As a result of these recent deaths, KCSU reminds listeners that you, if you are KCSU reminds listeners that if you are a veteran or active duty service member thinking of suicide or otherwise in crisis, you can call the Military and Veteran Crisis Line at 1-800-273. 8255. The line is active at all hours, and you can also text 838-255 or go to veteranscrisisline.net slash chat for help. The U.S. Department of Justice is appealing a federal court order that voids the travel mask mandate for buses, planes, trains, and more. Michael Balsamo and Zeke Miller from the Associated Press report that the Justice Department hopes to overturn the order that removed the federal mask mandate for transportation due to public health risks. The mandate was removed after a federal judge found that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention did not prove necessity in sending out the order, and said they are, quote, continuing assessment that at this time an order requiring masking in the indoor transportation corridor remains necessary for public health, end quote. The mask mandate in public transportation was recently extended into May before being struck down by a Florida judge. The CDC says that if a new mandate is put into place, it is because it is, quote, within the CDC's legal authority to protect public health, end quote. The extension was originally put into place due to rising cases of the Omicron BA2 subvariant, which AP says makes up half of U.S. cases. The Florida State Senate passed a bill ending Disney World's ability to govern their own space. Reuters reports that the bill was passed in response to Disney's opposition to the Don't Say Gay bill, which prohibits education on gender and sexuality for students below a certain grade. Disney World currently is located in a special tax district, which allows them to govern a portion of Orlando where the theme park resides. While the bill made it through the Senate, due to a request from Governor Ron DeSantis to prioritize the bill, the House of Representatives still has not considered the legislation, and they will decide the future of Disney's special tax district. The Reedy Creek Improvement District is governed by Disney, and if this bill makes it through the House and to DeSantis' desk, Disney and other corporations in that district will no longer get tax relief for providing services like firefighting and electricity to the area. That's all for National News Highlights. I'm Coda Babcock for KCSU News. This Thursday on April 21st, Through the Student Lens Film Festival will be taking place at Colorado State University. This is a College of Liberal Arts featured event and it will be featuring documentaries, short films, animated films, personal narratives, experimental work, and more by CSU students and alumni. Today I am here with Anna Tomka, who is the student programmer for the festival. Anna, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for asking. So tell me about Through the Student Lens Film Festival. Does it take place every year? So this is going to be our first in-person screening. The film festival started last year, um, was completely virtual, obviously, with COVID. And so we're really excited to have it in person. And Eddie, um, it's going to be CSU's first, you know, affiliated film festival ever. And that's a pretty big deal since our film program is growing and evolving every day. 
And you just mentioned Eddie. Is that where it's going to be taking place? Yes, it's going to be in Eddie room 212, and it's a pretty big auditorium, so we're hoping to fill all of our seats. And what time will the event start? So it's going to start at 6 p.m. in Eddie 212, and it's hopefully going to run about two hours with the Q&A. Perfect. That sounds great. And what are some upcoming pieces that you are looking forward to seeing? Ooh, I'm excited. So there's a few films being shown from last year. Um, some of the films that, you know, were given awards are going to be shown at the beginning. And then I'm really just excited to see some of the personal narratives. I think a lot of these students have really important stories that deserve to be out there and deserve to be seen. And from what I've seen, you know, without any spoilers, um, they're really powerful. There's uh, like a couple of films specifically that I'm thinking about that are just personal stories that you would not hear about every day without, you know, going to see these films. And they mean a lot to these students. And they're really putting themselves out there by making this and submitting them in the first place. How were the pieces of work chosen for the festival? Was there a submission and review process? Yeah. So we, um, all the films were submitted via Film Freeway. And it was a really long, lengthy process. I think we've had it open for a couple months now. And you know, we got films that, you know, weren't even affiliated with CSU students that we sadly had to be like, sorry, this is a CSU film festival only. But we mostly just went through the films and decided from an objective standpoint, which ones matched our message and what we were trying to put out there. And it was hard to turn down some films, but every film that was selected and every film that was submitted is important. And there's really talented people here. So the selection process was really difficult. Zara Allen is the student director of the film festival and she you know went through and really critiqued them and decided you know which ones would fit best. Why is this event important to CSU students and the CSU community? Wow um you know as someone who's studying film here I'd really like to see the film program grow and I want more people to know about it and you know I think every university deserves a really powerful film festival because films to me personally are a way to communicate something about yourself, but also share ideas and stories that a lot of people haven't seen before. And they all have really powerful messages behind them. And I think it's a creative outlet. It just really lets students, you know, have fun regardless of their major, or their department that they're a part of. You know, anyone can make a film. Anyone can submit a film to this film festival. And it's cool to see everyone just come together with like a creative mindset and enjoy these films. It's really fun. Are there winners announced at the end of this festival? Yeah, so we have two awards and runner-ups that we're going to be giving out, and we'll allow everyone that is attending the screening to vote at the end. So that'll be exciting to announce those awards, too. Do the winners receive any prize of some sort? Not that I know of. You know, this film festival, this is the second year technically, but first year in person. And so we're really, you know, getting the word out there just, you know, by ourselves, you know, we don't have specific funding that we're using. So right now, it's really just the honor of being recognized in CSU's film festival and saying, you know, I accomplished something and it's kind of like the first of its kind. What are some of the important characters that have helped you and others make this film festival possible? Yeah, I, you know, the creator of the film festival, Professor Usama Al-Shabi, is incredible. You know, he started this, you know, from nothing, from scratch, really. And the fact that 
we're getting this much attention that we're having an in-person screening is amazing. Um, he's a communications professor and he teaches a lot of film classes and I've been lucky to have him for the past three years of, you know, my time here at CSU and, you know, everything that this film festival has become is really because of him and also, you know, our student director, Zara Allen. Um, she's been incredible and they've been working on this tirelessly for what, you know, over a year, probably a year and a half now. Um, but yeah, you know, special thanks to them. They've done incredible work. And, you know, like I said, they've been doing this with, you know, without, you know, any special funding or anything. It's really just word of mouth and hanging up flyers and all of us getting together and going chalking on the, the LSC. So yeah, um, just want a special thanks to them. Definitely. My final question is, how do you think the importance of this event will influence the community of Fort Collins in the future? I hope that this event encourages creativity, especially in Fort Collins. I'd like to see, you know, people feeling inspired to take a camera out and just film whatever's going on in their life or whether they're telling a story about someone else or they're animating a story. I think it'd be really cool to promote film and, you know, also have people understand the value of film. And I think that's something that's really missed is, you know, people think it's purely for entertainment, but I think it's for you know, it can be educational storytelling. It can be inspiring storytelling. But yeah, as of this event, I'm just really hoping that, you know, our film program can grow and, you know, students will be inspired to create, really. Well, that was a great answer, Anna. And thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Through the Student Lens Film Festival will be taking place on the 21st at 6 p.m. in Eddy Room 212. Make sure to stop by if you want to support student filmmakers. This is the Rocky Mountain Review on KCSU on 90.5 FM. We'll be right back. Hey, it's DJ Sang, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode number 47 of Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler, brought to you by 90.5 KCSU. We are now officially a full week into the MLB regular season, and what a weird and wild week it has been. It's been amazing to finally be able to watch and listen to regular season baseball once again and witness the sights and smells a feeling that will never get old. I want to start off this week's episode of Painting the Corners by recapping some of the incredible parts of the last week of games, some of the oddities, the amazing plays, and excitement that has seen fans all around baseball getting back into the sport that they love. In the past seven days, there have been over 150 home runs hit, over 1,150 hits, and over 1,250 strikeouts, which equates to an average 393 ERA for each team up to this point in the season. Of those 150-plus home runs, nine of them belong to the current home run leaders, Nolan Arenado, Byron Buxton, and Seiya Suzuki, who have three home runs apiece. 
Albert Pujols got his first home run back in a Cardinals uniform on Tuesday, and Nelson Cruz got his first home run of the season as he cranked his 450th home run of his career on Monday. Giancarlo Stanton has already clubbed two home runs on the season, meaning that he's just one home run away from 350 career home runs, a pretty impressive feat for the 32-year-old Yankees outfielder. Wander Franco currently leads the MLB in hits with 11, complementing his 550 batting average to start the season, followed by two Cleveland Guardian players, Stephen Kwan and Jose Ramirez, who both have 10 hits on the year. And speaking of Stephen Kwan, the young rookie out of California has had an incredible start to the season. Kwan, on top of his 10 hits, has a 667 batting average to start the season, along with 7 runs scored and 4 RBIs, and a 750 on base percentage. Some good stats without a doubt for the first week of the season. But what really stands out about Kwan's season up to this point is that he hasn't struck out. Actually, as a matter of fact, Stephen Kwan has seen 115 pitches so far in his MLB career, and he has zero swings and misses. I cannot state just how incredibly impressive and absolutely crazy that is. Of course, the odds of that continuing till the end of the season is very low, but it'll be extremely exciting to see just how long this unbeatable streak lasts. Oh, and did I mention that Quan became the sixth player since 1901 to record a five-hit game within the first three games of his career? <laughs> yeah, that, that too. I think Stephen Quan is having a very good start to the season. As far as pitching performances go, Halish Shashin, Tyler McGill, and Stephen Wilson all have two wins on the season, while Nathan Avaldi. Clayton Kershaw and Max Scherzer all led the league in strikeouts, with all three having 13 strikeouts apiece in their 10, 7, and 11 innings of work, respectively. Kershaw was very good in his first start of the season, as he struck out 13 of the 21 batters that he faced, giving himself a chance for a perfect game until Dave Roberts decided to pull him out in the 8th inning shortly before the Twins catcher, Gary Sanchez, hit a single off of Alex Vesia. It would have been interesting to see the 34-year-old lefty try his chance at history, as he only had 80 pitches in his seven innings of work. But since it was so early in the season, manager Dave Roberts thought better than to push the pitch count of the veteran. Lots of good things happened this week as well, some powerful, heart-touching, and incredible moments like Jose Iglesias getting an RBI single in his first at-bat since his dad passed away, and Alyssa Nakakin becoming the first woman to coach on a field during an MLB game when she walked out to be the first base coach for the San Francisco Giants on Tuesday. The first ever walk-off occurred via an umpire announcement on the public address system, a really cool new system, not too dissimilar to that in football and an unreal amount of walk-offs have occurred as well. Oh, and the benches have cleared twice already. 
first with the Mets and the Nationals after Francisco Lindor got hit, and then with the Cubs and Brewers with some kind of bad blood between those rivals. Bobby Witt Jr. has started to prove his worth with the Royals thanks to a couple of extremely clutch hits pretty late in games. And Hunter Green, in his Major League debut, struck out seven batters against the defending World Series champion Atlanta Braves. Oh, it's so good that baseball's back. (laughs) Now, I know that the first week of baseball almost always feels like the craziest part of the season, other than playoff baseball, of course. Because players are out there playing the game that they love in front of tens of thousands of fans for the first time all year again. It's so early in the season, they don't have anything to lose. So why not play hard? Why not play like it's a playoff series? I mean, sure, the season will calm down soon. But this week has really been some of the most exciting baseball we've seen. Something that baseball fans desperately needed after the MLB work stoppage at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. With opening day out of the way, however, I want to finish off this podcast by talking about some of the father and son relationships that we've seen in baseball. I'm talking about Major League Baseball players who had sons that found their way in the league like Vladimir Guerrero Sr. and Vladimir Guerrero Jr., or someone like Ken Griffey Sr. and Ken Griffey Jr. According to the Elias Sports Bureau, there have been 255 father-son combos in Major League history. But the important takeaway here is that the career of the father or the career of the son are usually quite a bit different. Of the 255 father-son combos in the history of baseball, 14 of the fathers, Earl Avril, Yogi Berra, Craig Biggio, Eddie Collins, Vladimir Guerrero, Tony Gwynn, Freddie Lindstrom, Connie Mack, Jim O'Rourke, Tony Perez, Tim Raines, Ivan Pudge, Rodriguez, George Sizzler, and Ed Walsh have all made it into the Hall of Fame. None of their sons have been inducted, however. As a matter of fact, only two sons, Roberto Alomar and Ken Griffey Jr., have made it into the Hall of Fame, which, I have to imagine, makes family get-togethers pretty interesting. (laughs) That's not to say, however, that no father-son duo has been close to making it into the Hall of Fame with each other. Let's start with Bobby Bonds and his son, Barry Bonds. Bobby Bonds was a right fielder who played for 14 years in the MLB, from 1968 to 1981. In that time, Bobby spent seven years with the Giants and smashed a career 332 home runs and 1,886 hits. And, of course, we all know about his son. (laughs) Barry had 14 All-Star appearances compared to his dad's three, as well as eight gold gloves compared to Bobby's three, and seven MVP awards compared to his dad's one All-Star MVP award. Neither, as we know, made the Hall of Fame. Ken Griffey Sr. and Ken Griffey Jr. are next, of what became the first case where the father and son duo actually played on the field at the same time in their time with the Seattle Mariners. On August 31st, 1990, 
both senior and junior ran out to the outfield. In the game, both Griffies went one for four, with Ken Griffey Sr. hitting a single in the first inning, thereby winning a bet he had made with his son that he would get the first hit out of the two of them. Later that season, on September 14, 1990, the Griffies hit back-to-back home runs in a game against the Angels. To this day, they are still the only father-son duo in MLB history to not only homer in the same game, but to do it back-to-back. A quote that I found doing research on these two that makes me laugh every time I read it goes something like this. Junior sometimes tries to give Senior advice, but Senior tells Junior to turn over his bubblegum card and check his number of lines. Senior says, when you fill up your bubblegum card like I have, then you can give me advice. (laughs) That's a quote from Ken Griffey Sr.'s wife, Bertie Griffey, in an interview with the Associated Press. And I feel like that quote just perfectly lays out how these relationships, I'm sure, are for all 255 father-son combos in the major leagues. It just goes to show you the little rivalry that these two had as well. And although Senior didn't quite make it to the Hall of Fame, his son did, as Junior received 99.3% of the vote back in 2016, which, man, again, has to be such a point of contention between the two. (laughs) Sandy Alomar, Sandy Alomar Jr., and Roberto Alomar have to be next, as one of the 16 father and two sons combos in the MLB. Sandy Alomar Sr. played from 1964 to 1978 as the second baseman and shortstop for six different teams in the American League and National League, spending the most time with the California Angels. Alomar Sr. had a career 245 batting average with 1,168 hits and one all-star appearance. Sandy Alomar Jr. and Roberto Alomar joined the league at the same time in 1988. Sandy Alomar Jr. played for 20 years, the most of the three, and spent 11 years with the Indians. The 6-foot, 5-inch catcher had a career 273 batting average with 1,236 hits and 112 home runs, as well as a Rookie of the Year award to go along with his first and only gold glove and his first of six All-Star appearances. Roberto Alomar was still the most successful of them all, however, as he was the only Alomar to make the Hall of Fame. Roberto Alomar followed in his dad's footsteps and played second base his entire 17-year career, where he clubbed 2,724 hits, 210 home runs, and a career 300 batting average. Unlike his father and brother, Roberto Alomar had 12 All-Star Game appearances, two World Series rings, 10 gold gloves, four silver sluggers, and an ALCS and All-Star Game MVP award. One thing that Sandy Alomar Jr. has over his brother, Roberto, is the Rookie of the Year title. Sandy Alomar Jr. finished first in the voting in 1988, while Roberto finished fifth. (laughs) So, you know, a point of contention there as well. And finally, I'll finish off this segment with two father-son combos, each known for power in their day, Cecil and Prince Fielder and Vladimir Guerrero Sr. and Jr. 
Cecil Fielder played 13 years in the MLB and had 319 home runs, recording 51 home runs in one year alone. Prince Fielder, on the other hand, played 12 years in the MLB, also recording 319 home runs, weirdly enough, of which he hit 50 in one year, so one less than his dad in one year. (laughs) It's crazy to see how close in skill level and overall stats this father-son combo really is. The other father-son duo follow a pretty similar path, to be honest with you. Vladimir Guerrero Sr. played 16 years in the MLB, eight of which were with the Montreal Expos, and in that time, he recorded 449 home runs while also recording 2,590 hits. Guerrero's eight silver sluggers earned him the MVP award, a home run derby championship, and a place in the Hall of Fame. His son, however, is already having a bit of a similar career up to this point. Guerrero Jr. already has 73 home runs in his four years in the big leagues, thanks to his silver slugger season last year, where he clubbed 48 home runs by the end of the season. Many believe that Vladdy Jr. may make a solid run to the Hall of Fame and become the first father and son combo to make it to Cooperstown. Only time will tell if such a feat does occur, and honestly, I think even if you're not a fan of either or both of the Guerreros, we're all kind of rooting for it to happen. So there we go. That was a quick overview of the wild first week of regular season baseball in 2022, and a quick discussion of some of the best father and son duos to ever play the game of baseball. In next week's episode, we'll move on to the Negro League and talk about the brief history of the league, some of the records that came out of it, and the eventual disbanding of the league altogether, thanks to an old Brooklyn Dodgers legend by the name of Jackie Robinson. And it just so happens that the next episode will come out right after the 75th anniversary of Jackie Robinson Day in the MLB. Thank you for listening. This is Ellie Shannon with your tech news. Apple workers in Atlanta filed to unionize Wednesday, becoming the first retail employees for the tech company to do so in the nation. Staff at the Apple Store in Atlanta's Cumberland Mall submitted their filing Monday since many want Apple to live up to their ideals. Ayana Archie of NPR News also reports that unionization efforts have increased at other large companies, such as Amazon and Starbucks. Employees are fighting for the respect that the same individuals who work in an office can get. Former President and First Lady Barack and Michelle Obama will not be signing a new podcast deal with Spotify, reports Jay Peters of The Verge. This is marking a major departure for the Obama's production company, Higher Ground Productions. According to a Bloomberg report, Higher Ground Productions is instead talking to other distributors about a deal worth tens of millions of dollars, among the most lucrative in the podcasting business. Higher Ground apparently wants to be able to make multiple shows and release them on platforms simultaneously, which would go against Spotify's typical exclusives-based strategy. Amazon's Audible and iHeartMedia are among the several companies Higher Ground is in negotiations with for a new deal. Google is introducing new options to reject tracking cookies in Europe after its existing dialog boxes were found to be in violation of EU data laws. James Vincent of The Verge reports that France's data protection agency 
fined Google $170 million for deploying confusing language and cookie banners. Google allowed users to accept all tracking cookies with just one click, but forced people to click through the various menus to reject them all. Now, Google's new cookie banners give clear choices, such as reject all, accept all, or more options. Google kicked off the launch in France and will be extending it across the rest of the European economic area in the near future. Thanks for listening to my tech news updates. This is Ellie Shannon for KCSU on 90.5 FM. And now, here's the weather. Today was warm and partly cloudy with a high of nearly 80 degrees and a low in the mid-40s. Friday will be warm and mostly sunny with a high of 80 and a low of 45. Moving into the weekend, Saturday will cool down to around 60 degrees for a high with a low around 35. Sunday, the sun will come out, but the conditions will stay cool with a high of 55 and a low around 30. Monday will warm back up to a high of 65 with a low of 35, and Tuesday will warm back up to a high of over 70 degrees with a low in the mid-40s. And for Wednesday, tune in next week on Tuesday for another episode of the Rocky Mountain Review, only on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. I'm Cota Babcock for KCSU News, and information comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Portia Cook, Thomas Taylor, David Demuth, Stevie Jones, Hannah Copeland, Bryn McCall, Jack Balsley, London Shell, Hannah Hitchcock, Elliot Hutchinson, Eric Zhang, Brennan Cole, Bridget Vandell, Eliza Droder, Dylan King, Michelle Ellis, Ben Haney, Ben Kruger, Anna Schwabi, Marie Tanksley, Peter Walk, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Allie. And we finally couldn't do this without you, dear listener. <laughs>